0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio.
1: Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Episode 6, Greek Tragedy Part 2. Okay, so last time we took a look at Aristotle's view of tragedy, which he viewed as the highest form of art. We discussed the reasons for that, and we attempted to sketch out a modern-day tragedy using the tenets of Aristotle's theory. Today, we have a different project to take a closer look at the three great practitioners of Greek tragedy, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. What were their plays about? How did they differ from one another? And what meaning can we find in them today? But because we are the History of Literature podcast, which means we dig as deeply as we can and take nothing for granted, we're going to start with another philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, who developed his own views of Greek tragedy. It was his first book, the product of an exuberant 28-year-old philologist writing far beyond the scope of anything that could reasonably be said to be within his discipline. Critics hated it. And their outrage led to a second guessing of the decision to have granted this brilliant young man a full professorship. Too wild and iconoclastic for his contemporaries, and decades ahead of its time, the book landed with a critical thud, and Nietzsche himself later expressed his frustration with it. And yet, we now view it as something of a milestone in the history of thinking about art and society, a flawed but astonishingly original piece of work. Let's take a look at what Nietzsche thought about tragedy and see if there's anything we can take from him today. And don't worry, I haven't forgotten the promise from last time. We're looking at the question of why we'd like Facebook posts about personal tragedies and what it means for us as a culture. I'll have some thoughts on this that I'll share at the end. But first, let's take a look at Nietzsche. Now, the context for this first book of his, The Birth of Tragedy, is an incredible story. He was a philologist, a brilliant philologist, an amazing mind for classical languages. But not a philosopher. Not yet, anyway. Philology is the study of language in written historical sources. It is a combination of literary criticism, history, and linguistics. It is more commonly defined as the study of literary texts and written records, the establishment of their authenticity in their original form, and the determination of their meaning. That's the standard definition. I took it straight from Wikipedia. If you know anything at all about Latin or Greek scholars, you know what kind of passion they bring to their work. But also, you know the kind of rigor and focus. It's a narrow, technical, specialized field. And so I imagine that I suppose Nietzsche's fellow philologists thought that he was bringing out a typical book of philology, a painstakingly close read of an ancient work. Maybe he would discuss the development of a particular linguistic term or a part of speech. But that's not what Nietzsche did. Philology is not the sort of discipline for a bomb thrower like Nietzsche. Nietzsche had the kind of mind and spirit that couldn't ever be contained. He would have spilled over no matter what field he was in. But he was also undeniably brilliant. And remember, this is still before he's published a book. He's quickly established himself as one of Germany's leading philologists. They made all kinds of exceptions to grant him a professorship at an impossibly young age. And then what happened how did we get from that to the wild man we know what unleashed him and when did it all begin because once he perceived sorry once he received his professorship he could have had a steady highly successful life a very normal one he could have dug into those ancient works studied the language in them produced one sturdy philological treatise after another instead He sat down to write his first book, and he sat there thinking, reading, looking out the window, back to the text, scrutinizing the words, their origins, their meanings. But he was thinking, too, thinking with the passion and creativity and exuberance of an artist. This mind of his could not be contained by the limits of his field and the immediate task at hand. His mind roamed, his mind ached and burned. His mind soared. He looked at the predominant view of ancient Greeks, the one that prevailed among his German colleagues at the time, happy people, a little simple, a little naive, believing in those cute little gods, attending their happy little festivals, languishing about on their sunny islands, thinking their adorable little thoughts. Nietzsche looked at the work he was doing on Greek tragedy. He was reading about the religious festivals with their pagan music, their dancing, their drinking, their unleashing of human spirit. And then the communal trip to the theater, where they sat among thousands of their fellow citizens and watched a tragedy on stage. Some believe the word tragedy itself comes out of the words for goat song that this Dionysian festival with its ritual slaughtering of goats, and the singing and the dancing, that the pageant and the festival are inextricable from tragedy, from the play that followed. That it's not just a spectacle, it's not just a one-off event, but it's an entire culmination of the five days of revelry that preceded it. It's the sort of thing that would have struck a chord with Nietzsche, who was studying the words and their origins, All this was so different from the world he was living in, the one that he thought of as stifled by rules and religion and all the trappings of modern-day polite society. This world, the ancient Greek world, was a world where people danced and drank themselves into hallucinations and had sex and sacrificed animals, goats, to their gods. Then they went to the theater and contemplated the worst possibilities, life in its rawest, purest form. The tragedy of a man tearing out his own eyes after he learns that he has fathered a child with his mother. Nietzsche didn't think this looked happy or simple or naive at all. Nietzsche thought this looked more advanced, a stronger way of living in the world. By comparison, his own society, polite churchgoers following rules and commandments and avoiding sins in order to try to keep oneself clean for heaven, well, to Nietzsche that looked timid and joyless and self-defeating, self-abnegating. Lives were being squandered by this timidity. Where was the passion, the strength, and the joy in one's own strength? Where was the unleashing of the full range of human experience? Where was the willingness to live? Where was the exuberance? Where was the joy? You can almost feel Nietzsche trembling with excitement. It was in the Greeks. The Greeks were pointing the way to a new conception of life, a new way of living in the here and now. These weren't happy, simple people. These were grown-ups, adults willing to immerse themselves in life, in the ups and downs, the good and the bad. That's what did it for Nietzsche. That's what sent him over the top. Greek tragedy. Greek tragedy. Nietzsche would go on to talk about the abyss, about staring into the abyss. God is dead was, of course, his famous phrase, and he spent much of his career contemplating what happens when you pull away Christianity. In other words, what happens when you take away everything that Christianity has imposed on European society? Think of all the structure and all the rules that Christianity brings along with it. 2,000 years of priests and commandments and morality, all landing on top of Europeans, imposed upon a people from on high what did that do to people? And what would happen if you took it all away? Because you wouldn't just be taking away the commandments, and the morality, and the sins, and the guilt, and maybe the requirement to attend church a couple of times a week. You'd be taking away a people's entire way of thinking, their codes, their beliefs, their views of how the world worked. You could say that life's meaning and purpose are provided by religion, Christianity certainly offered that to people in Europe in the 19th century. Every question you have, we have an answer. Every bit of fear or doubt or a nagging sense that life is bigger than you, come to us. We'll help you tamp those dark thoughts down. What would be left if you took all that away? Something naked and raw. Something exciting and dangerous. Something human. And Nietzsche looked at these tragedies and the people who went to see them and said, There it is. That's what I'm looking for. From art and also from life. It's right here. It's right here before Christianity got involved and turned a hose on the fires. The abyss, staring into the abyss, living a pure, exuberant, joyful life, taking on the world, testing oneself by absorbing the full meaning of life, not the one handed to us by the leaders of society. The ones who want us to be docile and neutered. The full embrace of life, the ability to do so. These guys had it. So he wrote the book. All the flaws, all the strengths can be seen in that basic view. We have to recognize what Nietzsche was trying to do before we can begin to understand his take on the tragedies. And we have one more mystery to solve. We talked last time about the three great tragedians, Aeschylus. Sophocles and Euripides. Aeschylus was the father of tragedy, the innovator who put a second actor on stage so that conflicts could be acted out in front of the Greek audience. Sophocles, of course, was the author of Oedipus the King, the play so admired by Aristotle he used it as the foundation for his theory of how tragedy worked. And then there's Euripides, author of Medea. He was the youngest of the three, though he died the same year as Sophocles and their careers overlapped. Most critics consider him the third great tragedian, equally as great as the other two. But not Nietzsche. Nietzsche couldn't stand him. Nietzsche saw in the tragedies of Euripides and the figure of Euripides something that other critics didn't. What was it? We'll find out after this quick break. So we're on a quest to analyze the tragedies of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, and to see why Nietzsche admired the first two and couldn't stand the third. And eventually, we have to figure out what this means for us today, and whether it has anything at all to do with how we treat personal tragedies on Facebook, by liking those posts. Aeschylus was born sometime around 524 BC. As a young man, he was a soldier and he fought in the Persian Wars, which finally ended with the defeat of Persian invaders in 480-479. to By then, the Dionysian festivals were well established, four or five days in the spring, that were so popular and so important that public business was suspended. Even prisoners were released so they could participate as well. Poets were selected to produce plays in different genres. Tragic poets wrote tragedies and satyrs, which were burlesque plays on a mythic theme, and which led to our term satire, and comic poets were commissioned to write comedies. They gave a tragedian like Aeschylus three days to present three different tragedies, or a tragedy in three parts. His most famous surviving work, that is the most famous of the seven that have survived, is the trilogy known as the Orestia, so-called because they involve the character of Orestes, the son of the warrior Agamemnon. Now, if you've forgotten, Agamemnon is the king who launched the Trojan War by putting together the ships that were sent out to retrieve Helen. I'm not a huge fan of long plot summaries. If that's your thing, I encourage you to take a look at the summaries online for the three plays of the Oresteia, Agamemnon, the Libation Bearers, and the Eumenides. I'm going to focus on the story as it relates to the main theme, which is justice, and to focus on what's most interesting to me, Which is to look at the aims of the artist, Aeschylus, and to see how storytelling was used to achieve those aims. Storytellers always make choices in building their narratives. How did Aeschylus go about building his castle? What choices did he make? The trilogy is about the house of Atreus, a legend that would have been well known to the Greek audience watching the plays. It starts when the warrior Agamemnon returns victorious from the Trojan War, where he is Immediately, or almost immediately killed by his wife, Clytemnestra, and her lover, who also happens to be Agamemnon's cousin. Why is this? What leads to this murder? Is it a lover's quarrel? Not quite. The two of them, Clytemnestra and Agamemnon's cousin, are compelled to commit the murder by their devotion to their sense of justice. Why? What kind of justice is this? What has happened to bring this about? As it turns out, Agamemnon's hands have been bloodied by war, not just in the conquest of his enemies, but in his ambition and the deeds he did to achieve his victory. There was a problem when Agamemnon wanted to launch the ships and sail after Helen. Artemis, the goddess of war, was angry with Agamemnon and she would not let the ships leave. So Agamemnon sacrificed his own daughter to appease Artemis. It was an ambitious move and it eventually led to Agamemnon's victory and all the glory that that brought about, but it also led to consequences. Even though he won the war, his wife felt the need to avenge her daughter's death under the code of retributive justice that ancient Greece, and remember when we say ancient Greece here, we're talking about a a Greece that was ancient even to Aeschylus and Athens, the theater goers who were watching the play, The ancient code of retributive justice was in effect, and Clytemnestra had to avenge her daughter's death. And her lover, Agamemnon's cousin, wasn't just along for the ride. He too had a sort of retributive justice to seek. His brothers had been murdered by Atreus, Agamemnon's father. That was the world of justice. And if you think we've advanced far beyond the impulse, you haven't heard of the Hatfields and McCoys, or you haven't heard the interviews of George W. Bush, Talking about Saddam Hussein's attempt to kill Bush's father. But here's the problem with retributive justice where does it end? Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon to achieve her own justice, but then this too must be avenged, and it falls to Agamemnon's son, Orestes, to carry out the vengeance. In the second play of the trilogy, The Libation Bearers, he accomplishes this. Justice is served once again, but now, who will kill Orestes? Who will avenge the death of Clytemnestra? There is no son. Orestes is the son. But murder requires justice of some kind, even if it's the son who has killed his mother. And the only justice known to the ancient world, as Aeschylus is depicting it, is avenging by an heir. Suicide? No. Instead, Orestes sees a vision of the Furies. Serpent-haired female hunters whose job it is to enforce tribal justice when no one is at hand to do so. Even if there's no one around to avenge a murder, the Furies will be there, waiting. And they are waiting for Orestes. That's the dilemma. And if the Furies would have killed Orestes, we might have stopped there. Three tragedies, three murders. You could see the plot for all of them, and Aeschylus would take home another prize. But he has something more in mind. Aeschylus is interested in this idea of retributive justice. Hatfields and McCoys, sons avenging deaths, wives killing husbands, murder leading to murder, senseless cycles of violence. All this is no good, says Aeschylus. Athens deserves better. And indeed, Athens had moved on to something better as of that time. But like dueling or other customs, even when they're outdated, there are people who long for the old ways or who practice the old ways, or who don't fully embrace or appreciate the new. The new in this case is this, a trial system. Justice would no longer depend on acts of vengeance. How do we get there? In the play, Orestes appeals to the god Apollo, who stops the Furies from killing Orestes and instead places them in charge of overseeing the courts. Justice will be served, but only in a system of communal justice which judges fairly, or at least attempts to do so, and takes away the anarchy of family killings. Justice moves from something carried out by individuals and individual families and puts it in the hand of the state. That's a fairly sophisticated modern reading, and by that I don't mean that I'm imposing it on a primitive author, but that the author himself is as modern as we are in this respect. It's how a play today might end, to show that the establishment of a trial system rather than a vengeance killing system, is important. And in fact, that the establishment of this trial system is more important than it would be to show a third killing. Now, I don't want to suggest that this somehow cerebralizes or sterilizes the plays. The characters themselves are often in the dark about what they're doing. And killing people close to them merely because they believe they must. They're tragic heroes. They aren't absolved or elevated beyond the tragic fates by the knowledge that they're serving a larger purpose. That's all for the audience to glean and to recognize that this makes the tragedy all the more tragic as the characters are forced to do these horrible things but which the audience views as inevitable. That's life in a sentence, isn't it? Or rather, two words. Horribly inevitable. Inevitably horrible. So that's Aeschylus a good read if you're interested in justice or even better, a good viewing experience if you're fortunate enough to find a good version of it being acted out on stage. How about Sophocles? We spent so much time with his play Oedipus the King last time that I want to instead focus on one of the other plays he wrote, Antigone. Antigone is the daughter of Oedipus, who is the only one helping her father during his days of wandering as a blind beggar after he has blinded himself of course, when he found out that he had slept with his own mother. Her battle in this play is with Creon, the king who has banished Oedipus from Thebes. Antigone's brother is killed in an attempt to overthrow Creon, and Creon orders that no one will bury his corpse. Antigone defies the order and scatters dust on her brother's body to attempt to give him an honorable death. She then is sentenced to death by Creon, and Creon refuses to pardon her. Okay, so whose side do we take here? On the one hand, we have the selfless Antigone honoring the dead. These qualities she exhibits, bravery, loyalty, empathy, respect, these are all good qualities, right? Creon, on the other hand, sees a citizen defying a state decree and that she's doing so to honor the memory of a traitor to the state. These were political and religious views that were likely shared by many in the audience. Remember Aristotle's view that the audiences of tragedies left the tragedy as better citizens? Wrestling with this kind of question might be one of the reasons why. It's a tough call for us even today. How do we weigh the needs of the state against the loyalty to a family member? We admired the Unabomber's brother for turning him in, although perhaps that was an easier case because lives were at risk and no one wants to be responsible for that. Or how about this hypothetical? Would you turn in your brother to the IRS? Why not? Because you value your family over paying taxes? What if your brother was stealing from the treasury? Or if he were a spy for another country, would you still have that loyalty? Where do your family obligations end? Where does your obligation as a citizen begin? When is a pardon justified? When, if ever, is it morally necessary? And where do we stand on these things? That's kind of the larger theme. But Sophocles isn't the Charlie Rose show. We view them through the lens of tragedy, and the events of the tragedy are as cathartic as Aristotle could hope. King Creon ultimately submits to Antigone's moral persuasion and decides to pardon her, but it's too late. Antigone has already committed suicide in her underground prison. It is then Creon's turn to experience tragedy. His own son, who has fallen in love with Antigone, and who believes in her cause, commits suicide as an act of solidarity. And Creon's wife, whose son has just killed himself, then commits suicide herself out of grief. Creon is left alone. His actions have led to his world without his wife or his son. All well and good. Aristotle would approve of the form, and Nietzsche approves of this play as well. But what about Euripides? What's so different about him? What made Nietzsche despise him in his plays? The answer may surprise you.
0: Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get Fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus, in the Wondery app, or Wondery Kids Plus, in Apple Podcasts.
1: Nietzsche is so much fun to read because of these surprises. His passions are iconoclastic, his take on the world completely different from anyone else you'll read. After you read enough Nietzsche, he begins to get somewhat predictable. But the first read is a delight. As it happens, the first book of his that I read was this one, The Birth of Tragedy, which I read in college as part of a course I took on tragedies. Side note, as you tick off all the things I've gotten wrong in these episodes, please note that this was many years ago and I was an extremely unexceptional student. Let me give you a flavor of the experience I had when I read Nietzsche for the first time, and I'll stop when I get to the first big surprise that I noticed. What I'm about to read comes from Nietzsche's own preface to a later edition of the book, The Birth of Tragedy. This is Nietzsche, the philosopher in full bloom, This is him looking back at the early work of the philologist who had not yet come out of his cocoon. And the translation, I should note, is one that I found online. It's credited to Ian Johnston of Vancouver Island University. Nietzsche titles the preface, An Attempt at Self-Criticism, and it begins. Whatever might have been the basis for this dubious book, It must have been a question of the utmost importance and charm, as well as a deeply personal one at the time. Testimony to that effect is the period in which it arose, in spite of which it arose, that disturbing era of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and 1871. While the thunderclap of the Battle of Worth was reverberating across Europe, the meditative lover of enigmas, whose lot it was to father this book, sat somewhere in a corner of the Alps extremely reflective and perplexed, thus simultaneously very distressed and carefree, and wrote down his thoughts about the Greeks, the kernel of that odd and difficult book to which this later preface should be dedicated. A few weeks after that, he found himself under the walls of Metz, still not yet free of the question mark, which he had set down beside the alleged, serenity of the greeks and of greek culture until in that month of the deepest tension as peace was being negotiated in versailles he finally came to peace with himself and while slowly recovering from an illness he had brought back home with him from the field finished composing the birth of tragedy out of the spirit of music from music music and tragedy the greeks and the music of tragedy the greeks and the artwork of pessimism the most successful most beautiful, most envied people, those with the most encouraging style of life so far, the Greeks? How can this be? Did they, of all people, need tragedy? Even more? Art? What for? Greek art? One can guess from all this just where the great question mark about the worth of existence was placed. Is pessimism necessarily the sign of collapse, destruction, of disaster, Of the exhausted and enfeebled instincts, as it was with the Indians, as it is now to all appearances among us, the modern peoples and Europeans? Is there a pessimism of strength, an intellectual inclination for what in existence is hard, dreadful, evil, problematic, emerging from what is healthy, from overflowing well-being, from living existence to the full Is there perhaps a way of suffering from the very fullness of life? Attempting courage of the keenest sight which demands what is terrible as the enemy, the worthy enemy against which it can test its power, from which it wants to learn what to fear means? What does the tragic myth mean precisely for the Greeks of the best, strongest, and bravest age? What about that tremendous phenomenon of the Dionysian? And what about what was born out of the Dionysian, the tragedy? And by contrast, what are we to make of what killed tragedy? Socratic morality, dialectic, the satisfaction and serenity of the theoretical man. How about that? Could not this very Socratism be a sign of collapse, exhaustion, sickness, the anarchic dissolution of the instincts? And could the, quote, Greek serenity of later Greek periods be only a red sunset? Could the Epicurean will hostile to pessimism be merely the prudence of a suffering man? And even science itself, our science, indeed, what does all science in general mean, considered as a symptom of life? What is the point of all that science? And even more serious, where did it come from? What about that? Is scientific scholarship perhaps only a fear and an excuse in the face of pessimism? A delicate self-defense against the truth? And speaking morally, something like cowardice and falsehood? Speaking unmorally, a clever trick? Oh, Socrates, Socrates, was that perhaps your secret? Oh, you secretive ironist, was that perhaps your irony? Okay, let me pause there. I had not read a lot of philosophers or philosophy at this point, and I could not believe the urgent, collar-grabbing style of this one. It was closer to Salinger in the Catcher in the Rye than it was to, say, Aristotle or Kant. Plato and Nietzsche might be the two most readable philosophers who ever lived. And here was Socrates, Plato's great protagonist, the patron saint of philosophy if there ever was one and he's the one under attack. I couldn't sort through this in my head. I gathered that Nietzsche hated Christianity. That was fine. I understood that. And he favored the Greeks. Great. I get it. But why then would he hate Socrates? Socrates drank, but he never got drunk. This fact infuriated Nietzsche. Why? I couldn't get my mind around it. If you cast off Jesus, as Nietzsche was doing, why wouldn't you embrace a pre-Christian like Socrates? Let's let Nietzsche try to explain. Remember, he's writing from the point of view of the older philosopher, looking back at his first book, declaring it something of a noble failure. In his view, he came across the central problem, a new problem, and as yet undiscovered problem with art and society, but which at the time he lacked the understanding Or the strength to fully grapple with. Here he is. Let me say again today, for me, it is an impossible book. I call it something poorly written, ponderous, embarrassing, with fantastic and confused imagery, sentimental, here and there so saccharine it is effeminate, uneven in tempo, without any impulse for logical clarity, extremely self confident, and thus dispensing with evidence even distrustful of the relevance of evidence, like a book for the initiated, like music, in quotes, for those baptized into music, those who are bound together from the start in secret and esoteric aesthetic experiences as a secret sign recognized among blood relations in the arts. An arrogant and rhapsodic book, which right from the start hermetically sealed itself off from the profane rabble of the educated, even more than from the people. But a book which, as its effect proved and continues to prove, must also understand this issue well enough to search out its fellow rhapsodists and to tempt them to new secret pathways and dancing grounds. At any rate, here a strange voice spoke. People admitted that with as much curiosity as aversion, the disciple of an as yet unknown god, who momentarily hid himself under the hood of a learned man, under the gravity and dialectical solemnity of the German man, even under the bad manners of a follower of Wagner. Ah, this is me again. Here we are. Wagner. Wagner of the Ride of the Valkyries, of the enormous operas, the grand, the grandiose. That's Wagner. Nietzsche himself was very close to Wagner, He worshipped him for a while, ingratiated himself to him, he became like a member of his family. Then they had a huge falling out. Wagner. Wagner's a clue. When Nietzsche wrote The Birth of Tragedy, he was in love with Wagner, Wagner's operas. He thought there was something meaningful and important, that there was a rebirth of tragedy that could come out of Wagner's music. By the time he was writing this preface, he had recanted that. He was now embarrassed by his youthful ideas. Let's keep going. This one is a little bit longer, but it's because Nietzsche gets into a, a a full-throated Nietzschean rant as only he can. He gets on a roll. I don't want to cut him off. <laughs> never want to cut off Nietzsche <laughs> when he's in full throttle. It's too enjoyable. Here we go. This new soul should have sung, not spoken. What a shame that I did not dare to utter as a poet what I had to say at that time. Perhaps I might have been able to do that, or at least as a philologist. Even today in this area, almost everything is still there for for, for philologists to discover and dig up. Above all, the issue that there is a problem right here, and that the Greeks will continue to remain, as before, entirely unknown and unknowable, as long as we have no answer to the question, what is? is Dionysian. Indeed, what is Dionysian? This book offers an answer to that question. A knowledgeable person speaks there, the initiate and disciple of his God. Perhaps I would now speak with more care and less eloquently about such a difficult psychological question as the origin of tragedy among the Greeks. A basic issue is the relationship of the Greeks to pain, the degree of their sensitivity. Did this relationship remain constant? or did it turn itself around? That question, whether their constantly stronger desire for beauty, for festivals, entertainments, and new cults, really arose out of some lack, out of deprivation, out of melancholy, out of pain. For if we assume that this particular claim is true, and Pericles, or rather Thucydides in the great funeral oration, gives us to understand that it is, where then must that contradictory desire stem from? which appears earlier than the desire for beauty, namely, the desire for the ugly, the good, strong willing of the ancient Hellenes for pessimism, for tragic myth, for pictures of everything fearful, evil, enigmatic, destructive, and fateful as the basis of existence. Where, then, must tragedy have come from? Perhaps out of joy, out of power, out of overflowing health, out of overwhelming fullness. And psychologically speaking, what then is the meaning of that madness out of which tragic as well as comic art grew, the Dionysian madness? What? Is madness perhaps not necessarily the symptom of degradation, of collapse, of cultural decadence? Are there perhaps, a question for doctors who treat madness, neuroses associated with health? With the youth of a people and with youthfulness? What is revealed in that synthesis of God and goat in the satyr? Out of what personal experience, what impulse did the Greek have to imagine the Dionysian enthusiast and original man as a satyr? And so far as the origin of the tragic chorus is concerned, in those centuries when the Greek body flourished and the Greek soul bubbled over with life, were there perhaps endemic raptures? visions, and hallucinations which entire communities, entire cultural bodies shared? How's that? What if it were the case that the Greeks, right in the richness of their youth, had the will for the tragic and were pessimists? What if it was clearly lunacy, to use a saying from Plato, which brought the greatest blessings throughout Greece? And on the other hand, what if to turn the issue around, it was precisely during the period of their dissolution and weakness that the Greeks became constantly more optimistic, more superficial, more hypocritical, and with a greater lust for logic and rational understanding of the world, as well as more cheerful and more scientific. What's this? In spite of all modern ideas and the prejudices of democratic taste, Could the victory of optimism, the developing hegemony of reasonableness, of practical and theoretical utilitarianism, as well as democracy itself, which occurs in the same period, perhaps be a symptom of failing power, of approaching old age, of physiological exhaustion rather than pessimism? Was Epicurus an optimist? precisely because he was suffering. We see that this book was burdened with an entire bundle of difficult questions. Let us add its most difficult question. What, from the point of view of living, does morality mean? You can see where Nietzsche's mind and spirit are taking him. He's casting aside everything that everyone around him finds important and meaningful and not just as a balm or some kind of salve they find it enriching they find this culture sophisticated enlightened and nietzsche's rejecting all that and saying no 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 you've got it all wrong the greeks the pagan festivals the rituals the music the dancing the embrace of earthly cares the slaughters the wine sitting with 17000 others taking in a tragedy watching this spectacle This is better than Socrates. This is better than rationality or science. It's the spectacle. It's sitting with all these others, hallucinating together, absorbing the enormity of the human condition, watching the stage and touching the flame, not just touching it, but thrusting your whole fist into it. That's what Nietzsche says. That's what he looks at it and and thinks to himself. He thinks that's how humans should be living. That's real life. Not this slave life we all live today, where we defeat ourselves, where we refuse to live, where we shrink from exploring ourselves, our human condition, our spirit, our power to the fullest. We're afraid of our own shadows today, but the Greeks weren't. They accepted life and themselves and they sought to be bigger, better, larger versions of themselves. This was all heady stuff for a kid from Wisconsin, Wisconsin, the Midwest, where the point of life is to learn how to live within limits. We have to wrestle with Nietzsche for no other reason than to reject him. But before we reject him, it's intoxicating stuff. It's about art. Did you know that, note the part where Nietzsche referred to himself as a poet? <laughs> Fantastic. A philosopher who's got the spirit of an artist not the military, not about conquering other countries, it's about being an artist or experiencing art and music and not letting those grown-ups tell us what to do, enjoying being young and strong and powerful, and ultimately not letting ourselves be our own worst enemies. Be big, be bold, because you are big and bold. Be bigger, be bolder. That's the message. Nietzsche has for us. We grow out of it. But for a 20-year-old, you might as well hand out lines of cocaine on the quad. So, one might think that our third tragedian, Euripides, would fall right into this. Can't he be a third hero, along with Aeschylus and Sophocles, for Nietzsche? And it's not immediately clear why he's not. Euripides wrote Medea, another story of justice and revenge, I'll describe the play, then we'll talk about Nietzsche's response. As the play Medea begins, we learn that Medea's husband has cast her aside in favor of a princess. Who is Medea? She's a woman and a foreigner. Now, those things are significant because we're watching a play about someone with little or no rights in Athens. You can almost hear Euripides demanding answers from Aeschylus. Fine, fine, we have this trial system. Communal justice has replaced tribal justice. But here's someone society has diminished, has ignored. Here's someone society treats as a lesser person. All around us, in fact, there are people like this, people who aren't considered part of this community, the way full male citizens are, and yet they live and breathe and love and hate like anyone else. They have their moral codes. They feel the need for vengeance. They know when they've been wronged. What justice are we giving to them? Are we letting them participate in the communal system that we're holding for ourselves? You call this justice, Aeschylus, this trial system? You say it's the way humans should live, that it's an advancement for society? Well, that may be what if there's a category of individuals that we're treating as subhuman? Where do they go? Where does Medea go for justice? What does it do to her to burn inside when she's cast aside in favor of this princess? What does disgrace and shame and insult, where, does the, where do those feelings go? What outlet is there? Who will seek justice on her behalf? And if the answer is no one, do we blame her for turning to the old ways, for seeking a little vengeance? That's what I imagine Euripides saying. Isn't that what you'd do, audience member, if you were in her shoes? Isn't that what our ancestors would have done? Isn't that the human thing to want and to do? So Medea kills the princess. There's the vengeance. Her husband has to live without his wife. And that would be an interesting play. Very dramatic, raising some interesting questions. But where's the tragedy? Remember Aristotle, the tragedy is often the hero taking something noble or admirable. In this case, maybe courage, maybe a a sense of justice. That's what Medea has for Aristotle, the tragedy comes when the hero takes things too far. And that's the genius of Euripides and the awesome power of this play. Medea also kills her own sons. It's the twisted logic of retributive justice. She kills her own sons so that her husband will need to live without his new wife or his sons to comfort him. But for us in the audience, it means we've just watched a woman whom we've had some sympathy for, a woman we may have identified with. Now we've just seen her kill her own children. Which is without a doubt the most heinous form of family-on-family killing that we can imagine. I think it's been that way in all cultures. In the history of time, you could go through every permutation of family killing. Husband kills wife, grandson kills grandfather, etc., etc., you won't find one more dramatic than mother-killing child. Even today it makes us squirm. It's like watching Walter White or Humbert Humbert. We feel uncomfortable at ever liking this person. Even as we're compelled to continue watching or reading, we wonder what it means about us. The way we feel. We reject the idea that we're supposed to identify with them. And yet, we're drawn to them too. We see them as something more complex than the monstrous acts they're committing. And what does that say about us? Forces us to ask some very difficult questions. You'd think that Nietzsche would have loved all this, right? You'd think he would have been all over this, would have been glad at the way it stretched people out, the way it tested people's souls. But here's what Euripides did that Nietzsche couldn't forget here's the sin that Nietzsche couldn't forgive. There's a change Euripides made and that change caused Nietzsche to lump Euripides in with Socrates and Plato and Jesus and the priests and the scientists and the politicians and all the other unartistic creatures that Nietzsche felt like he had to overthrow. Euripides got rid of the chorus. This is the Greek chorus who once accompanied the tragedies, they had a role. They stood on stage singing, accompanying the spectacle. Euripides said, no, we don't need them. Got a hot drama here. I don't want the distraction of singers. And for Nietzsche, this was unpardonable because it cut the experience. It cut the Dionysian experience out of the event. In Nietzsche's view, this was one of the steps on the path to considering these things like critics with the rational thinking part of our brain rather than the music, musical rest-to-the-cosmos part of our whole body. No longer did a festival spill seamlessly into a theater. Now the festival stood apart, in Nietzsche's mind anyway, and by the time we inherited it, there was no life left to it we'd lost the ability to experience it in the way that the Greeks had. This was Nietzsche's view of Socrates, that it began a system of rationality, thinking of clever wordplay, irony, defining terms, sort of twisting things around, but all of it with rationality. Socrates, the philosopher who drank but never got drunk, that was what Nietzsche couldn't stand. Euripides for him was just one more step. You don't need the chorus, then you don't get it. You don't get it. Your words are not enough. You're cutting out the experience. You're, you're turning this into something sterile. That was Nietzsche's accusation for Euripides. It's An interesting idea. It's almost certainly wrong. But Nietzsche wrong is more interesting than a thousand other philosophers' right. Nietzsche is provocative, and I wonder what Nietzsche would have made of the cinema. What would he have made of Francis Ford Coppola, using music in a film like Apocalypse Now, using the song "The End" by the Doors, as he introduced that journey into the heart of Vietnam, the madness of Vietnam, using that wild music as he showed the sacrifice. That sacrifice could have come straight out of the Dionysian ritual. It was a real sacrifice, actually, of a water buffalo. It's an incredible part of the filmic experience. I think they filmed it on the last day. It's really an unbelievably powerful scene. He was getting at something deep inside us all, communicating something deep to the audience. And the audience was sitting there in a community, in the theater, in the dark theater. What would Nietzsche have made of all of that? think he would have approved. Would he have seen a rebirth of tragedy with a film like that? Would he have admired the experience, viewed it as something like the Wagnerian operas or the Greek tragedies. Then, of course, there's the most famous music in Apocalypse Now, the scene where the helicopters are flying over, the machine guns are strafing the Vietnamese villages, countryside, the peasants, the horrible, horrific act, and the music playing behind it is soaring inspiring, uplifting, even as we're watching these. And we know that this is all being done for the lamest of reasons. It's being done so that one of the officers will be able to surf. That's what the helicopters are for, and here they are flying overhead for the most worthless of reasons, even in a war it's being done to the sound of the ride of the Valkyries by Wagner. What would Nietzsche have thought of that? And what are we to think of our Facebook dilemma? What does our trip through tragedy tell us about how we should be thinking of that strange occurrence, the fact that we like a post about a death? This is what I think. Obviously, we aren't expected to experience death in life, in real life, the way we do at the theater. Aristotle got that. Nietzsche understood that. It's clear that art is different. That's one of the purposes of art. And what this fact, this anomaly, this liking a post tells me is that the need for tragedy, tragedy as theater, never leaves us. We have to know how to deal with death and grief and hard questions how to comfort someone. These are all things that are with us, no matter what our religion is, no matter what state our culture is in, or what our judicial system is doing, or what sort of political system or political leaders we have. We need to deal with these questions somehow, because they are human, and they're painful. And we cannot be fully human if we don't also experience some of the pains that come with it. We can live without tragedy of the theatrical kind, but we can't pretend that tragedy of the real-world kind doesn't exist. And it's the latter fact that makes us turn to the former. Is there a benefit to having tragedy as an art form play a prominent part of our culture? That may be up to you to decide. But here's a tougher question for all of us. I think a lot of people will say, That we have Hollywood endings. We prefer the happy endings. We prefer art to be an entertaining distraction. But there's no room for tragedy in our culture. And that's just fine. But we don't need it. The real world is difficult enough. Why do we need art to be rubbing our noses in the hard truths and realities of real life? That may be fine. You may argue but there isn't a benefit to tragedy anymore. But here's a harder question that I want you to ask yourself. Maybe there's not a benefit, but is there a need? I'm Jack Wilson. This has been another episode of the History of Literature. Next time... We'll finish up our look at ancient Greek drama by taking a look at the comedy of Aristophanes. And you can find out more about our project at historyofliterature.com or jackwilson.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. You can send us an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com or leave us a comment on the episode's notes. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us how much we got wrong. Tell us anything you're enjoying things you'd like to hear more of or just continue the conversation you can pose questions there as well there's also a phone number where you can call and leave me a voicemail and if i like your question maybe i'll play it on a future episode of a podcast as we continue to explore our journey of the history of literature literature why does it matter what stories do we tell one another why are they important thanks for listening everyone